0: What will it take for California to go carbon neutral? Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. I'm Devin Strolovich. Just 10 years ago, an entire state running on 100% clean power seemed like a distant fantasy. But that vision became reality when California committed to 100% use of zero carbon energy by the year 2045. The state's pledge to go carbon neutral at the same time raised the stakes even higher.
1: This is truly a life-changing kind of goal. It's not something that we can do in small steps incrementally. It's going to be big.
0: Mary Nichols is chair of the California Air Resources Board, a position she's held since Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger appointed her in 2007. She believes the technology and the will exist to not only reduce California's emissions, but to remove carbon from its atmosphere.
2: We have been polluting for free since we learned how to burn logs. And and if we take it up through the 20th century, we got into really bad habits. John Hoffmeister is former
0: president of Shell Oil Company in California. He thinks the path to carbon neutrality will be technological and driven by business more than public policy, especially in transportation, where Americans' mobility habits will drive automakers to adapt. When we talk about you know,
3: being a car manufacturer, we're really evolving more into being a mobility company as well.
0: Bob Holycross is Global Director of Sustainability and Vehicle Environmental Matters at Ford Motor Company. Ford and John Hoffmeister are both financial supporters of Climate One, and today's program is underwritten by the Climate Works Foundation. Here's our conversation about how California and other economies can go carbon neutral.
4: Mary Nichols, let's begin with you. What is the the vision? What is the path to a state, one of the world's
1: what, fifth or sixth largest economy, fifth now? Yeah. Going carbon neutral. Well, there are several other uh, countries and regions that are now Uh, looking at carbon neutrality as the goal. We call it climate neutrality because we're looking at all the gases that contribute to climate change, not just carbon. And that's an important uh, fact because there are uh, gases out there, particularly methane, Mm -hmm. but also refrigerants, black carbon, that are doing a lot of damage right now and that we can uh, do something about before we may be able to completely reverse the trend to build up of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But it's not, um, it's not a simple uh, question to answer. It clearly requires us to look system-wide not just sector by sector cars fuels industry for the first time we really have to look at our entire economy and all of our activities and say how are we going to restore balance how are we going to restore health and that includes looking at our soils our forests our ecosystems as well
4: is this going to be a costly and painful path or is this you know how much sacrifice or uh, pain is going to be involved into being climate neutral in California?
1: You know, that's always the question. Of course, if you're in a political environment, uh, you can't ask people who have to go before the voters to do things that are going to cause them to get voted out of office. We saw what happened with the yellow jackets in uh, in Paris when mm-hmm. you just say to people you're going to have to spend more for gasoline too bad, you know. Uh, it, this is a, uh, a real challenge to adopt these programs in ways that benefit people. We think we've shown that we can do it with our cap and trade program, with our low carbon fuel standard and other things. But we're going to have to knit these things together in a more comprehensive way and to include, frankly, everybody. It's because this has to be something that the whole society buys into.
4: John Hoffmeister, when you hear a big, ambitious goal like this of a big economy uh, getting to zero net emissions, is that something you think is pie in the sky? Is it something you think industry could support?
2: The industry that I come from, the oil and gas industry, is the kind of industry which when when you're dealing with the long term thinking leaders of the industry, they want to get behind it. They actually want to make it happen. They want to see what can be done. Now, they take, a, in my experience, a balanced view of what's the reality of, let's say, oil and gas looking forward. And I would say if I spoke for the industry, I don't actually technically speak for the industry, but I'm still very close to it. If we look ahead over the next 50 years, which is the normal time frame for energy companies to look ahead, what we're looking at is virtually the complete electrification of the personal transportation fleet. That's a given nobody's too worried about that. Maybe the motor company motor car companies are worried, but the oil and gas industry is pretty well set that it 's going to be electrification of the personal transportation fleet, but that doesn 't mean it 's the end of oil and gas because you have the whole freight industry which is going to be more difficult to electrify. You have the marine industry, which is not going to be electrified uh, and, and, and maybe end up using LNG for its fuel on ships but is more likely to continue to use diesel for decades to come. You have the aviation industry, for which there's really no alternative being pursued in any scalable way. And then, of course, you have the petrochemical industry, which is going to carry on for decades and decades into the future, all of which represents demand growth worldwide over that 50-year period. So what the industry is converting its thinking to, and and you haven't heard much about it yet because the industry's a bit introverted about these things and they don't talk until they have something to really say. But what is growing, and in the last two weeks I've been to two meetings in two universities on the same subject, and it is the introduction and creation of the carbon management industry. Where the technologies and the technological minds of the industry will convert themselves into figuring out how to make a business out of carbon by taking it out of the atmosphere taking it out of what people worry about, so that as you look ahead to 2070, you'll be looking at a continued use of carbon based product, but within an industry that is getting rid of it. So that for other countries like California, want to go net neutral. You put enough investment into carbon management, you can use carbon, but then get rid of it. And, and I, I have to confess, there's a, I told my wife I was going to say this, it's like the meatpacking industry producing hot dogs. <laughs> what do you do with the awful of the animals that you're butchering for pork, for chicken, for beef? When all that awful is left over, you turn it into hot dogs and people eat them by the billions. <laughs> I'm not suggesting we're going to eat carbon. But but there will be other uses for carbon from a chemical standpoint, from a physical standpoint. So I think we're going to see massive carbon reduction in the years ahead. Bob Cross, when you hear about electrification of everything,
4: California going to to, to zero emissions, how does that a- approach? How do you think that as a, as a automaker? Does that sound like a challenge? Does that sound like something that's remote or
3: threatening? No, I think it, it's a challenge, but it's also a significant opportunity. And I think in terms of the progress that the industry has made and that that we at Ford have made, it's a path that we all have to be on. And the interesting piece now that we're at is, as we we start to get consumers more and more familiar with this technology and realize the benefits that it provides beyond just being zero-emissions transportation, but being fun to drive, being functional, um, overcoming some of the anxieties that maybe consumers originally had about these vehicles, uh, the possibilities start to expand greatly. And then when you think about what other things you can do with these vehicles in terms of connectivity, um, the services that can be provided, it really starts to change the equation. And so this is a really interesting and, and exciting time to be in our industry and at Ford, um, we're really excited about the investments that we've made and, and how we're re-engaging consumers to look at these vehicles in a different way.
4: Ford, I think it's fair to say, hasn't really been a leader in, in electric cars. I've, I looked up the sales of uh, plug-in cars at Ford. You know, the C-Max was 28,000 units cars in 2014. It was 6,000 in 2018. The Fusion was 300,000 units cars in 2014, 173. So sales of Ford cars with a plug are going down, while John hofmeister and others are saying the industry is going electric. So are you falling behind?
3: No, I I don't think so. And and in reality, with the vehicles that we had on the market, I mean, you named a number of different vehicles. So we have had um, offerings in electrification out for some time, and including a full a fully ba- uh, fully electric battery vehicle in our Ford Focus as well. And we learned a lot from those experiences. And we're in the in the position right now of transitioning our fleet and spreading it more into the nameplates in the vehicles where we have uh, leadership in those. So while the numbers on an individual basis maybe aren't as, as high as, as some might have expected, collectively at the time when those vehicles were in the market, we actually had leadership in terms of overall volume. Um, and we're looking forward to uh, 40 all-new uh, electric vehicles coming over the next four years by 2022. We made an $11 billion investment and are on our way to electrifying some of the most popular nameplates we have, like the Mustang and the F-150, and um, at the end of next year, we'll, uh, we'll come out with our next generation fully electric vehicle, um, which uh, I think will will uh, intrigue many consumers in terms of its styling and functionality.
4: And the F-150 has been the best-selling car in the country for four decades. It's not a car. <laughs> <Okay.
1: laughs> best-selling <me>. <laughs> vehicle. It's, <laughs> a <truck. laughs> it's a truck. It's a truck. There
4: we go. Okay. <laughs> Big, significant difference. Uh, but <laughs> making that electric. So are you convinced, uh, Bob Holy Cross, that there's going to be a lot of uh, truck drivers out there who are going to want a fully electric
3: uh, truck. Well, you know, we took a big bet on the F-150 a few years back when we turned uh, the whole platform into all aluminum, took uh, over, mm-hmm. over 700 pounds of weight out of the right. vehicle and increased the efficiency of it to levels I don't think anybody thought were possible. And when you mess with uh, the crown jewel, so to speak, um, you take some risk, but you also recognize in order to stay competitive and we're not going to concede that leadership to anyone. Um, that is where you have to turn next. And so it wasn't just about you know taking weight out of the vehicle, but even from a powertrain perspective, we, we downsized the engines, and I don't think anybody would have thought years ago you could put a 2.7-liter, you know, six-cylinder engine into an F-150 truck, as Mary says, and still deliver the same functionality but with greater efficiency. So when we transition now to electrifying the powertrain, and the first one will be a hybrid F-150 that comes, We have to deliver that same and solution to customers and that's how you really get the scale and the benefits that we all need collectively
4: Mary Nichols in 2008 when the auto industry went bust and taxpayers bailed them out They agreed to some increases in fuel efficiency the first in 20 years Uh, now. There's what's called a midterm review There's a battle going on between the Trump administration the industry in California. How's that going to
1: play out in the courts? I hope not. I hope we can find a way to keep it out of the courts. I think that the Trump administration jumped ahead of where the industry was and certainly ahead of where California is in proposing a solution which essentially halts the progress that was being made on fuel economy in cars and trucks that continue to use conventional fuels. Um, You know, I'm always in sort of an awkward position when I get into these conversations because I am not the enemy of the auto industry. In fact, the opposite, I am a car Lover, Uh, I I drive, you know, I drive an electric car, but I've had a fuel cell car. Uh, I live in Los Angeles. Uh, You know, it would be uh, crazy to think that California wanted to um, punish the industry Uh, by, you know, making it impossible for them to thrive. We want them to thrive. We want them to provide vehicles that meet our environmental needs. And over the years, as a regulatory agency, my agency, the California Air Resources Board, has succeeded with a lot of... um, pushing and pulling sometimes, but basically in a collaborative way, in getting the industry to make their uh, products cleaner and cleaner, more efficient and more efficient. We're in a situation now where um, the market has changed. And we recognize that people in apparently very large numbers um, are not buying conventional sedans, regardless of how they're powered. They are buying either electric vehicles, which of course we want them to buy more of, or um, they're buying these SUVs and trucks and crossover vehicles. And the industry is making money on those, and so that's what they want to keep doing. What we have to find is a way that those vehicles that are going to be on our roads for a long time to come into the future can be as efficient as possible, can use the best technology so that those that aren't going to turn right away into fuel cell electric or battery electric vehicles can be um, getting more miles to the gallon and less emissions as they drive around. It's a—it's an issue of, of public health for us uh, more than anything else. And we think that there's a way that you can take the regulations that we adopted in the Obama administration and get the benefit of them and give the industry some of the flexibility that they want without throwing the whole program uh, literally out the window, which is what is being proposed at the moment uh, by the Trump administration. So we we have a, a, a battle. There's no question about it. The the administration in Washington, at least the people in the in charge of the Department of Transportation want California to go away. I mean, there's just no, they want us to, they, they do not want us to be regulating anything, but especially not the environment. And, and so we've got a struggle on our hands, but we're hoping that we're going to find a way through it.
0: It's understood that Hollywood sells You're listening to a Climate One conversation about creating carbon-free economies. Coming up, We'll hear more about California's ambitious climate goals, and we'll travel to Holyoke, Massachusetts, which is working to become the first carbon neutral city in that state.
5: The writing was on the wall that the coal plant would shut down, most likely. But the thing is, is that we didn't know if regulations changed, we didn't know that the administration, the federal administration was gonna take the turn that it did, but we always knew that's a possibility.
0: That's up next, when Climate One continues. We continue now with Climate One, California may be the largest economy trying to go carbon-free, but some cities in the U.S. are also making a go of it. Reporter Lucas Randall Owens spoke to officials and activists in Holyoke, Massachusetts about how that city is trying to transition to 100% clean energy.
6: On a good year, Holyoke, Massachusetts is long in their renewable energy. Or put another way, the town has enough carbon-free energy to provide for its 40,000 residents and even some leftover to sell. But that doesn't mean those numbers can't improve.
4: Oh yeah, we'd we'd love to be excess every year.
6: Jim Lavelle is the manager of the city's utility, and sees Holyoke as a leader in the adoption of renewables, and a recently completed solar array as one step closer to consistently having long, clean energy. The battery storage and the solar have certainly helped us keep very stable rates, and and some of the lowest rates in the region. But that solar array might never have been built. It is the end result of a multi-year grassroots campaign a campaign to shutter one of Massachusetts' last operating coal plants and replace it with one of the Commonwealth's largest solar farms and storage facilities.
5: Hey, Rosa. <laughs> Sorry, we came in here cuz it was so warm. Rosa, Rosa. Hola, Is majority Puerto Rican community.
6: Lena Enton is the deputy director of the Toxics Action Center and a former organizer with Neighbor to Neighbor, a coalition of community members working to alleviate inequality and environmental degradation in and around Mass.
5: So, we're an environmental health organization and we respond to communities who are facing toxic threats.
6: Holyoke faced a sharp economic decline in the 70s and 80s as manufacturing moved overseas. And while the coal plant had long been a fixture in the community, it had been on the decline for several years leading up to its closing, mostly due to competition from cheap natural gas. Organizers saw what was coming, but also saw uncertainty as new national leadership took over.
5: The writing was on the wall that the coal plant would shut down. Most likely, the coal plant was laying off workers. But the thing is, is that we didn't know if regulations changed. We didn't know that the administration, the federal administration, was going to take the turn that it did. But we always knew that's a possibility, right, that if the federal administration relaxes, some of these regulations, then coal could come back online. And we wanted to make sure that this coal plant shut down before any of those changes happened.
6: Health concerns were another issue. In the flats and downtown section of the city, there had been higher than average rates of asthma and other respiratory illness.
5: Rosa Gonzalez talks about not being able to hold down a job because her respiratory problems are so bad that she's in and out of the hospital.
6: Rosa and her husband Carlos were lead organizers in the campaign to shutter the plant. Carlos recently passed away, but the husband and wife team worked together closely in the community. My husband was involved, too. We were in it together. When I could, I went and joined
4: in, and if not, he went, and we continued in the struggle. We went everywhere, bringing the struggle to the statehouse and showing up to protests here in Holyoke.
6: There were roadblocks. The plant had long been a part of the city's history. It was an important tax base and job generator. And one of the major concerns to closure came from the workers themselves. Their main concern being that they would lose their jobs while many were nearing retirement.
5: We invited the workers to join our campaign. And I'm sure you can guess, (laughs) they were not too excited to join the campaign because we'd be shutting down their jobs.
6: Through repeated negotiations and pressure, the owner of the plant, GDF Suez, now Engie, agreed to provide retraining, severance packages, and a road to retirement.
5: It was a big win, a big win.
6: Remnants of the coal plant are still being cleaned up. A reuse study found sections of the site would best be put to use as a solar farm. Because the site had been contaminated by coal ash and sat on a floodplain, commercial uses were ruled out. Many in the city see the transition of the Mount Tum site as a success story, and Holyoke Mayor Alex Morse cites community organizers as having direct influence on the change.
3: I think what accelerated the closure was the activism and advocacy that happened in the community and throughout the Commonwealth to put pressure
6: on the coal plant to accelerate that closing. Mayor Morse says he wants Holyoke to be the first carbon-neutral community in Mass. and to do that, he thinks the public sector has to take the lead. Because the public sector has embraced those values, it's easier for us to then Uh, put that pressure on the private sector as well when they're building new developments here in the city or renovating or or whatnot. Lena Enton cites planning as key for successful change in a community. She often looks at other municipalities and campaigns for examples on what works and what doesn't.
5: So in Somerset, Massachusetts, their coal plant shut down and they didn't have a plan for what was coming next. And they scrambled to get funding from the state and do a reuse study, like a feasibility study to see what could replace the coal plant. And we learned from them to start early.
6: As cleanup continues, the largest feature of the plant still stands, the stack. It is slated for demolition this year and several ideas have been floated to reclaim the space once it's gone. All with an eye towards a cleaner future. Maybe a marijuana grow, maybe a community farm. More solar panels?
0: For Climate One, I'm Lucas Randall Owens. Let's return now to our conversation about California's drive for a carbon neutral economy with Mary Nichols, chair of the California Air Resources Board. Bob Holycross, Global Director of Sustainability and Vehicle Environmental Matters at Ford Motor Company. And John Hoffmeister, former president of Shell Oil Company in California. Here again is your host, Greg Dalton. John Hoffmeister, there are Shell
4: gas stations that are uh, I've seen them being torn up to install hydrogen. Some have electric charging uh, being put into them. Uh, What does that say about where they see the future going? Are they trying? Is that just marketing or is that real uh, anticipation of changing the way we fuel our personal mobility
2: in an industry like oil and gas? You're really putting your money where your intentions are in 1997 shell decided that we're going majority gas natural gas minority oil 97 got out of coal got out of coal in 97 and in 2000 we announced an agreement with iceland to turn iceland into a hydrogen energy system and and so it's been progressing for many years i tell people i've been in the solar or wind business for 20 years already And it's gone very slowly, as we can tell by the penetration, you know, in the actual amount of electricity. But hydrogen, I used to be the chairman of the Department of Energy's Hydrogen Fuel Cell and Technology Advisory Committee for a number of years. And and so I think you, you really make your choices and then you move forward. I'm not speaking for Shell any longer and I don't necessarily have the latest up to date on Shell, but I know they've been acquiring and in the UK acquired the UK's largest electricity refill station business so that they can put that into the shell outlets in the UK. In this country, hydrogen, of course, in California, hydrogen has been a big deal for many years. Governor Schwarzenegger was a big backer of hydrogen fuel cell, and we worked with him on the so-called hydrogen highway to move cars from Los Angeles to San Francisco and, and to try to get station operators to convert and make money at it. Because that's the ultimate goal is to make money at it. So the conversions are real. There's another, uh, maybe you could Google, people could Google a company called Buc-ee's, B-U-C-E-E-S. It's a huge retailer of gasoline in Texas. They just moved for the first time into another state. I think it's either Mississippi or Alabama. They are building 100-acre gas stations. Most typical neighborhood gas stations are on a partial acre. But you cannot handle the volumes in the future of vehicles that will have different fueling requirements, whether it's gasoline or diesel or hydrogen or electricity or whatever it may be. So they're starting out with 100 acre sites in some cases, 15, 25 acres and beyond, because they're going to be there when the Americans aren't going to stop being mobile. We, We are the most mobile nation in the world, and we love it. Uh, and and we can thank Dinah Shore for her famous "See the USA in your Chevrolet," and people, sorry, or your Ford. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 this is genuine, deliberate corporate strategy playing out.
4: Mary Nichols, for California to achieve its goals, is it going to have to play nice with some other Western states, which have different some some are coal based, yep. some of them don't necessarily want to dance with
1: Californians. Well, we're well aware of the fact that as the largest state and as a state that imports a lot of uh, a lot of power from other Western states, uh, we're not always going to be able to tell other people what to do, that we have to uh, find ways to come together that are in everybody's best interests. And we are very interested in doing that. Uh, We were engaging in some really positive conversations during the period uh, towards the end of the Obama administration, where the Clean Power Plan was on the table, because one of the alternatives to each state going its own way to meet the uh, emissions requirements was to do regional plans. And so uh, we are very much in favor of a grid that will allow all of the states in the region that share Power lines that you know share and uh, share an airshed really, as well as an electric system, to uh, to benefit from this kind of a system. And I think there's uh, there's clearly a way to do it and an interest in doing it. It would have been more helpful if the federal government had been leading the way. But, um, you know, the market itself and the the fact that coal is no longer really uh, a viable choice for investors and that the cost of renewables has come down so far um, is already opening up Uh, New opportunities where we see um, other uh, utilities in other states uh, that have never before been part of the California market joining up with our independent system operator and becoming a part of our, our market.
4: Another point of collaboration, California's tried to link up with Quebec, Ontario. One point is going to link up with other western states. Then a, elections happened and one by one those states fell out. Um, you know, how important is it for Ca- California to be connected with Quebec, Ontario? Ontario just backed away from California's doing it can be kind of lonely.
1: <laughs> well, uh, we have, you know, at the moment a very successful and vibrant uh, market in allowances for CO2. Which we share with the province of Quebec, and we so we have demonstrated that we can create a partnership that even crosses international boundaries, and that has provided both uh, economic benefits and also uh, climate benefits for both. Of our, uh, of our states. Uh, we started down that path with Ontario, and then they elected a Trumpian, uh, <laughs> if you will, uh, premier. And so uh, they withdrew from the market, and we were able to Uh, and that relationship without it doing any damage to uh, our companies or to the the Quebec uh, participants in the market, which was in itself, I think, a demonstration of the fact that we can that we can make this kind of a program work. We are also involved with a number of other states and countries that have uh, started down the path of cap and trade, um, including Mexico, including New Zealand, uh, South Korea and China uh in looking at ways in which we can not necessarily all be one big trading system but at least support each other's programs and you know share our knowledge and uh, perspectives on these things
4: bob holy cross a number of countries uh, uk india state of california have made some form of announcement about the end of the internal combustion engine moving away from gasoline entirely as a global company that isn't that is in that business? How do you view those those signals from policy leaders saying the age of gasoline is coming to an end sometime in our lifetime?
3: Yeah, well, it you know, I think it comes back to, um, you know, a little bit what John said earlier in terms of how that plays out, right? I think the vision of getting to a zero emissions uh, personal use commercial type vehicle application is going to going to play itself out in, in different forms. Um, the internal combustion engine for the for the, you know, the the short to midterm is still playing a role in helping to get electrification into the into the uh, in higher volume into the, the the vehicles as well. When you look at hybrid electric vehicles or even some of the plug in hybrid electric vehicles that still have smaller internal combustion engines on them, certainly to be able to power commercial vehicles for the, the uses that they need, internal combustion engines are going to play a role. But um, having spent the last two years in, in Europe working, working there, where we do see situations where cities have real issues with their air quality and are having to look at restricting vehicles going into the cities or whatnot. That's that's a that's an issue we need to be part of the solution for. So whether it's it's getting the electric vehicles into the different uh, uh, public use applications, whether it's uh, the public transportation or what have you, we've got to start working on those types of things now where it can start to make a difference. And then long term, how we get there We've got a large number of vehicles in the fleet that have to turn over. So when you talk about 2040 or 2050, the issue becomes how long before all new vehicle sales ultimately have to be that. And then the next step is when do, obviously, the vehicles in the car park get there as well. So it's a, it's a, it's a process.
4: We're talking about California's ambition to become a carbon-neutral economy in the global mobility and electricity sector with Mary Nichols, chair of the agency that regulates air pollution in California, the Air Resources Board, Bob Holycross, global director of sustainability at Ford Motor Company, and John Hoffmeister, former president of Shell Oil and an energy executive. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to go to our lightning round. I'm going to ask our guests uh, a name a noun, and ask you to come mention the first thing that comes to mind, unfiltered with complete disregard and abandon. Mary Nichols, what comes to mind? The first thing that comes to mind when I say Western States Petroleum
2: Association.
1: Dinosaur
2: John Hoffmeister, Tesla. Uh, Can it make it through the financial wilderness? It's in Bob Holy Cross, the Chevy Bolt. (laughs) The what? (laughs) John Hoffmeister, California Governor Gavin Newsom. I met him when he was uh, mayor of San Francisco (laughs) Mm -hmm. and we got on quite well and had a a very warm and engaging conversation at a a mayoral conference. And, And so I'm I look forward to seeing what's next. Mary Nichols, EPA Administrator, Andrew Wheeler. (laughs) Um,
1: Struggling to figure out how to do his job of protecting the environment while at the same time deregulating everything.
4: Bob Holy Cross, true or false, this is true or false, true or false, Bob Holy Cross, in her 10 years as California's top official for clean air, Mary Nichols has done more for climate protection <laughs> than any other single policy leader in the country.
3: Absolutely true.
1: <laughs> there we go.
4: True or false, Mary Nichols, Ford Motor Company is on the progressive side of the auto industry. True. Also for Mary Nichols, true or false, the cheating on emission tests test by VW, Mitsubishi, Mercedes, Honda, and other car makers may be repeated as long as there is a financial incentive to do so. Absolutely true. John Hoffmeister, true or false, if energy companies burn all of the oil and coal reserves currently on their balance sheets, We will live in a destabilized world of hurt.
2: Uh, I don't think so. I don't think we know how much is really out there in the world of tomorrow. True or false, Bob Holy Cross, all transportation is subsidized.
4: Uh, False. Also for Bob Holy Cross, true or false, California has a good track record defending its environmental policies in court. True. (laughs) Mary Nichols true or false there's a lot of opportunity to improve the efficiency of the internal combustion engine which turns only about 20% of its
1: energy into forward motion you know amazingly that is true every time it seems like almost every decade we have slashed the emissions and improved the efficiency of the internal combustion engine and people have said it couldn't you couldn't do more and still We keep on doing more. It's been a really tenacious technology.
4: True or false. John Hofmeister, Trump is nuts. (laughs) Uh,
2: (laughs) I think of the word scalawag more often than not. Bob
4: Holy Cross, true or false, you really don't want me to ask you if Trump is nuts. True.
6: <laughs> Alright, that ends our lightning round. Let's give them a round for getting the prickly fingered
0: friends. You're listening to a conversation about creating zero emission economies. This is Climate One. Coming up. Greg Dalton asks about more innovative ways that California and other states
2: could go carbon neutral. Carbon management is an industry we have not yet conceived, but to me, if there are millions and billions to be made by entrepreneurs, innovators, companies, big and small, that to me is a tremendous opportunity for this country. That's up next, when Climate One continues.
0: You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about California's ambitions for a carbon neutral economy, with Mary Nichols, chair of the California Air Resources Board. Bob Holycross, global director of sustainability and vehicle environmental matters at Ford Motor Company. And John Hoffmeister, former president of Shell Oil Company. Here's Greg. Mary Nichols, the climate conversation really has been focused on
4: tailpipes and smokestacks and trees have gradually come into the conversation. Some people would say they haven't been a big enough part of the conversation. But I think 2018 was a breakthrough year with the campfire, devastating fires in the West, which we've read that could undo a great part of California's progress. So tell us about how you're thinking more about trees and forests and fires
1: so we know that to achieve our goal of climate neutrality within California and around the world we're going to have to restore the ability of our land our forests our agricultural lands to be holders of carbon and not emitters, not net emitters. The forests are certainly a part of that. And we have some pretty serious problems all over the West with uh, forests that were attacked by the drought and the beetles and have dead and dying trees standing around inside the forests. Management of forests to restore them to health is a controversial issue. And although uh, sometimes People suggest that the science is completely clear. It's not really anywhere close to being as well established as in other areas what we should be doing. But we certainly know that uh, we're going to have to do more in the way of controlled burning, small burns, in areas that need fire to regenerate the forests, And that becomes a challenge then, because we're obviously not only emitting carbon when we burn, but we're also um, uh, releasing pollutants that threaten the health of, of communities. So uh, this is something that's going to take a very concerted effort.
4: Bob Holy Cross, we're talking about climate disruption. Another disruption I know that Bill Ford thinks about is artificial intelligence, robots, uh, robots making robotic cars. Talk to us about the job displacement that may come. You know, robots are coming for all of our jobs. It seems. Uh, I've even seen a robotic uh, or, or a computer-generated talk show host. Uh, uh, so, a hot world with you know. Artificial intelligence. What is that those things coming together? could be a lot of disruption for the automotive industry
3: Yeah, again a disruption, but uh, you know not to overuse it but opportunity so when it comes to uh, You know the manufacturing facilities of the future. There's no doubt Artificial intelligence is going to play a role just like it is It's going to play in the vehicles that we use so it, it really becomes about um, Upskilling and, and reskilling and transitioning um, you know how we make vehicles and how we uh you know design uh, the vehicles themselves to operate in this new world so it there's a lot of considerations that have to come into play in terms of uh you know whether it's uh, cybersecurity and and uh you know those different types of issues to make sure that that they're safe uh but um the opportunities in terms of efficiency Um, and what it can do in terms of uh, from a manufacturing perspective to, you know, have uh, reduced emissions from uh, the manufacturing sector, I think is is something that's really important and and we're on our way to doing.
4: Is the center of gravity and innovation in the industry I mean, cars are becoming tech platforms, right? Mm -hmm. Teenagers think of them as just moving, you know, entertainment platforms. Is that moving from Detroit to Silicon Valley where the energy? You know, Apple Waymo, all these companies are here in in California.
3: Yeah, I think it's it's definitely spreading around the globe. And, um, you know, we've we've definitely been engaged out here in California and we have our expanded uh, research campus in in Palo Alto, but you know we've made a significant investment back in Detroit as well, with the the central train station that we bought in Detroit and some of the other investments we've made in the Corktown district, where we've moved the the hub of our electrification and autonomy operation into those areas. So Detroit is going to continue to be at a very important um, center for you know the, the uh, technological advancement in our industries. But I would say. It's really expanding around the globe, whether it's in China or continuing to be in Europe as well.
4: John Hoffmeister, you think that if California became carbon neutral, it might do that, but it might be like the Mediterranean, which has a lot of tourism, not much manufacturing. How you know, tell us what that would. Yeah,
2: I think that when you look at the price per kilowatt hour of the electrons that people have to purchase, the risk is that the price rises to the point that we become an even more divided society. I I do some advising of business folks from time to time in Bakersfield and Fresno, Clovis, it's sort of the middle of the state. And they're very agriculturally and very manufacturing oriented. So the price of electrons means something very different to them than the price of electrons, let's say in Silicon Valley, where people are simply just plugged in. And, and they're earning their income and from a different source or the, the Hollywood types of, of Los Angeles. So I, I think that the division of the population, the societal factors have to be taken into account when we're talking about ultimately the price of electrons.
4: We're discussing California's ambition to be a zero greenhouse gas economy with Mary Nichols, Bob Holy Cross and John Hoffmeister. Let's go to our audience question. Welcome.
3: Sure, thanks. Hi, I'm Adam Stern. Uh, question from Mary Nichols. When you look at the path to climate neutrality, what part of it do you feel confident about, and what part keeps you up at night?
1: Uh-huh. Uh, so I feel quite confident that we have the technologies or can get the technologies online to not only reduce our emissions but actually suck carbon out of the air and reuse it. We're not there yet, and there are multiple paths in that direction, but I think we can do it. The part that keeps me up at night is the natural resources side of the equation, because in order to have a healthy state as well as a healthy economy, we have to restore the ability Ability of our rural our natural and working lands to also store carbon and we just have not ever had the kind of structure uh, as a society to really make that happen so it's going to take a, a huge effort I think not just to uh, come up with the ideas but also to really get everybody involved that needs to be involved to make it happen
4: Next question. Welcome to Climate One.
1: Hi, my name is Maggie Thompson. I'm a student
5: at Scripps College, um, and my question is directed to everyone. And um, we've so that this is about carbon neutrality, and we've talked about um, or implicated carbon sequestration a lot in this conversation. And I'm wondering if we could dive a little bit into the actual technologies that you guys have been sort of keeping in mind through this discussion, including geoengineering. Thank you,
4: John Hoffmeister.
2: Yes. And and that's what the carbon management industry will focus on are the technologies. There's chemistry in terms of converting the uh, various and sundry opportunities for that methane or that CO2 into various and sundry productive products that can be utilized. Or there is the aggregation of CO2 within cement and you bury it in the cement basically. And and then there's the the carbon capture and sequestration, which can be huge investment of capital intensive equipment and operations, which will totally change the way we think about the energy system because we've never had it. We have been polluting for free since we learned how to burn logs. And and if we take it up through the 20th century, we got into really bad habits. And is it the automotive companies fault? making the internal combustion engine or the oil company's fault that we're putting all the emissions out the tailpipe, or is it the consumer who's driving the vehicle that's putting the emissions out the tailpipe? Nobody's forcing them to drive their car. I I realize that's a very controversial statement to make. But who's responsible? And I say we all all have a responsibility in terms of the companies that produce the products that are used. and, And so that's where I think the technologies will come from, which will remedy the situation in great measure. Let's go to our next question. Welcome.
3: Hey, guys. Uh, my name's Alex. Um, I have a question, sort of given your experience working with policymakers in a lot of cases um, and looking ahead to 2020 and the 30,000 people likely to be running for the Democratic nomination. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm wondering if you guys have, have any ideas how it could be made an issue. Because historically, it doesn't win elections, and particularly given that one party has been slightly slower to catch up and kind of agree that climate change is an issue than the other one, it never really becomes a major issue in any kind of national election. I'm curious if you guys have any kind of thoughts on how that could change.
4: Bob Holy Cross.
3: Yeah, you know, in I've been at Ford for 25 years, and I've been in this arena in one capacity or another. So we've seen you know different administrations come and go in in, in the political. Uh, persuasion shift, uh, you know, in different ways. The, the thing that um, has been consistent for us, and I think for a lot across the different industries, is is climate change has just continued to become uh, an increasingly, uh, uh, you know, dire concern, and it's something we need to address. And from a regulatory or a policy perspective, what we need are mechanisms that are, are durable and can survive the different changes you know, from one election cycle to the next. Because as I mentioned earlier, with the investments that we have to make to be able to mitigate climate change, we need to have that regulatory uh, and policy certainty. So it, it is important that all the parties come together, whether it's the states or the federal government or local communities, and really get the right frameworks in place that can, that can survive through these different political cycles. That's how we, how we engage and look at it. John Hoffmeister, your
4: thoughts on whether it will rise in 2020. Tom Steyer says he's going to make sure some candidates talk about it. Jay Inslee is out there as the, as the climate candidate.
2: I'm rather pessimistic about the political process in this country and the inability to resolve differences in, a, in rational, practical ways, which is why I come back to who is it that will make the major moves to make a different market that's out there the one thing that this country does well is it runs great businesses that make major things happen. Now, not always to the good, but think what we did to social networking. Think what we did to mobility. Think what we've done to, frankly, electrification of society. And and when business gets behind it, and you may say, look, you're just a business fat cat, and I don't, I'm tired of hearing about it. What has the public policy other than a few exceptions like California, but go to any other state and find anything as coherent or as cohesive as California's position on environment, energy and so forth, which has been happening for decades. And, and I and I you know, have been running business in California, so I know the impact. But I really think that we need to shift to thinking from government as a solution to market product and market innovation as a solution, and that's why I've said multiple times tonight carbon management is an industry we have not yet conceived in our minds. But to me, if there are millions and billions to be made by entrepreneurs, innovators, companies, big and small, that to me is a tremendous opportunity for this country and it will solve the political problem by taking it away.
4: (laughs) Mary Nichols, last word on, you know, climate Uh, rising nationally. Sure. (laughs)
1: Uh, You know, I was at the uh, Paris uh, Conference of Parties where the accord was agreed on, and uh, we all left there saying, okay, now it's really up to the private sector, that without the massive investments that are needed to achieve these goals that the countries all said that they were going to sign on to, we'll never make it. We walked away, and that's exactly what happened, is that um, the countries all have... Failed in terms of making really aggressive policy uh, in, that would have pushed in this direction. And to the extent that there has been progress, it's come mostly from the private sector. We have to have both. We can't do it with just one or the other. There's too much of our infrastructure, too much of our transportation system, our electricity system, just to cite the ones we've been talking about, that are dependent on public policy. And where public policy today in most of the country is actually directing us in the wrong direction. So it's true that it will take business <clears throat> stepping up and in many cases leading the way. But the government is going to have to do its part too. Uh, I'm obviously uh, gratified to hear the, the praise for California because we have had consistent bipartisan leadership on these issues for decades now, uh, but it's going to have to be matched in other places. And I'm hopeful that we're going to get there just because the recognition, as everyone here is saying, about the reality of climate change is finally now hitting us over the heads. And we have, I think, more people are aware that we've got to do something.
0: Greg Dalton has been talking about going carbon neutral in California and beyond with Mary Nichols, chair of the California Air Resources Board, Bob Holycross, Global Director of Sustainability and Vehicle Environmental Matters at Ford Motor Company, and John Hoffmeister, former president of Shell Oil Company. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, the economy, and the environment. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California.
4: Kelly Pennington and Sarah Catherine Coxon run our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.